This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Social media today, whether it's Twitter, whether it's Instagram, whether it's Facebook, has been really enjoyable. When was the last day we could say that? When there wasn't a lot of anger and look at this and you don't know what you're talking about and that's not right and... There has been a lot of great stuff today. It's been Will Pechenig, for example. He's he's a former OHLer, still plays professional hockey, set up Will's Warriors. We talked with him not too long ago, and that's an organization that aims to help children who have lost a parent very early in life. And he just tweeted a video of his 93-year-old grandfather, who is a veteran, the connections are absolutely everywhere. Our own Matt McNaughton has lived a, a, an incredibly fascinating life because of involvement in the military in his own family. Matt, you were born in Belleville, so right near Trenton. Your dad was stationed there in Trenton when when you were first brought into this world? Yeah, my dad was piloting uh, C-130 Hercules out of Trenton when I was born. And uh, when I came into the world, it was military all the time, pretty much. <laughs> okay, so your your first memories, because you might be three, four, five years old. What are some of your first memories? Do they involve being on a base? Uh, it, my first real memories involve moving, which is something that if you're in a military family, you frankly really have to get used to. And uh, it probably be when I'm, I was moving to uh, Winnipeg. That was our second station, at least when I was alive. Okay, so you go from Trenton to Winnipeg, and then the moving didn't stop there. Eventually, you wound up overseas. How old would you have been when your family was stationed in Germany? I turned six years old on the plane ride over to Germany in 2001. Yeah, August <laughs> 13th, 2001. Exactly. <laughs> wow. Happy birthday to you. So turning six years old, and is it something that when you are in a military family, you eventually develop an appreciation of, of what is what is happening, or does it just all feel pretty normal in that yeah everybody must do this yeah when you're a little kid it's just life you know my my life was going to schools where you needed id cards to check in or if i was going to visit dad at work i had to go through like two levels of security and you had to be checked and everything like that you know you're used to going to places where there are fences all around you it's it just becomes this regular thing this daily routine with your dad's service, he was in the Air Force? Yeah, Royal Canadian Air Force, 35 years. Wow. And now retired? Now retired. He retired in 20, uh, 2009, and he worked as a civilian for NATO till about 2012, and then uh, we moved back to London. How much did he talk about what he did as a career as you were growing up? It depends, really. I, I knew where he'd been. I knew what he'd done, for example. I know that... Uh, in the early mid '90s, he was in Somalia with the UN doing the food drops. Uh, you know, have you seen Black Hawk Down, Mike? I have. The in the beginning of the movie, they talk about dropping food to the to the civilians of Somalia. He was working with that. He was there for uh, Black Hawk Down, the actual event, if I remember. I know he's been to Bosnia. Uh, I know he's done search and rescue out in the Maritimes and Prince Edward Island in Nova Scotia. But you know, it's it's not something that. And you find this with a lot of vets, at least in my opinion. It's 
never the details that they really like to go into, and that's okay. No, absolutely. Absolutely. We're talking with our own Matt McNaughton about growing up in a military family. In terms of when you know when you would be going to school, you'd be going to school with other people in, in similar situations. Did you eventually talk about what it was that you were doing, how maybe your school was a little bit different than, than somebody else who did not have a military connection? Yeah, like uh, one of the big things that our schools did is they were really, really highly active in Remembrance Day uh, services all over Europe because it's a huge deal over there. It's it's massive because for us, it's about to remember the veterans and their service. For them, it's about their liberation and it's about their freedom. So being a part of a military school and being part of this military community while being overseas adds this extra level of pride and responsibility when we get invited out to places like Vimy Ridge, to Passchendaele, to Ypres. Uh, I personally twice participated in an over 42-kilometer walk in this place in the Netherlands called Knockeheist, where every year they invite the Canadian military, specifically the Canadian military, to recreate the march they did to liberate the town from the Germans. It's, it's something different, and it's really, really important and a great source of pride. That is incredible. Okay, so so take us through this, and we'll talk in a moment just about some of those ceremonies and how yeah. they do differ from what we have. But So how did you get involved, and you've done this twice, how did you get involved with that particular walk? Uh, it was an invitation. So at the time, I was going to high school at this place called Afnorth International High School. It was a um, you know Department of Defense-funded international high school in uh, this place called Brunsum in the Netherlands. And... We would specifically uh, specifically get invitations from, uh, for the life of me, I can't remember the name, but from a school in the area of Kanaka Heist, where they would invite Canadian students to come stay with Dutch families. We'd be there for about four or five days, and on the anniversary of this liberation march, the whole town, select members of the Canadian military, certain officers, we would go and we would join them. Uh, it didn't matter what the weather was. The second year I went, pouring rain, but we still made the march. It was all about them showing their gratitude and thankfulness for what Canadians did during the war. And you're there for four or five days, but it's not like you're walking nine kilometers a day. This would culminate in an entire 42-kilometer walk? Yeah, so we'd spend a couple days initially going to a few museums. We'd spend a few days in the towns uh, with the local residents, learning about the town, uh, just kind of living with them. And then it wouldn't be till a, a designated day where you get up really, really early and you say, today's the day. Start marching. And so you'd be surrounded by people? I mean, this sounds like a very large group of people who were making oh, yeah. this march. Yeah, it was absolutely massive. It was everyone from youngest little kids. It was, you know, active service people. It was elderly people who were out in full force. It was a huge, almost caravan of people that, that were all there for the same purpose. And, uh, and of course, not everyone had to march the full 42K. Uh, there were different checkpoints and rest points that people could stop at or they'd have taxi services for, I mean, obviously, of course, some people just physically aren't capable to march that distance. So, you know, but it's it's about the spirit of the event and it's about the uh, the history of it. What do you think of or talk about when you're going through something like that? 
I think about my family. I, I, I'm, fr- I'm from a really long line of military uh, in, in my family. My, like I said, my father was in the Air Force. My grandfather was uh, a tank commander in the Korean War, and he worked with the UN in Vietnam. My great-grandfather was an artillery gunner at Passchendaele, at Ypres, the Somme in, in World War One. My great-uncle was a pilot in World War Two and a POW. So it's, I can't not get the image of my family out of my head. Have you ever visited Ypres or Passchendaele? Been to them all. Been it, to them all. It's an incredibly sobering and somber experience because, it, like, you walk around these fields and you see the craters. Those craters aren't supposed to be there, but that's where the bombs went off. There are places completely cordoned off where you're not allowed to enter because there's still very reasonably active ordnance in the dirt that could go off. You know, it's... Uh, from from Vimy Ridge to what is it Hill Forty Two I believe it was called, uh, all of them are they're different they're the same they're you know it, it makes you feel something else it's very hard to describe. No doubt we're talking with our own Matt McNaughton whose family has a very long military history and this is the day that we certainly make sure we remember and. We still have to make a better effort to do that. It takes a few seconds out of every day to think, yeah, why do I have this? Why was I able to go out to my mailbox? Why was I able to go and do whatever I wanted to do today? Why was I able to do that? We've got to pay more attention to that, and we know we do. Matt, you talk about some of the Remembrance Day ceremonies (laughs) that happen in Europe. If you grow up in Canada, you get very used to Remembrance Day assemblies. If you're lucky enough, maybe you have a connection to someone who has served, and, and you can speak with them at some point, or you get to meet somebody who has served in a military conflict. If you're Going through a a Remembrance Day ceremony in Europe, like you say, this is not about remembrance as much as it is about remembrance and liberation Mm -hmm. and being able to enjoy what they do enjoy right now because of that liberation. What are those ceremonies like? Do you stay in your school setting for them or are you going into each city every year? No, it's it's very active. Uh, There's always ceremonies and... Uh, any number of different towns that uh, want and hope for, you know, active servicemen and women to go to them and to speak at them. And, of course, we try to go to as many as we possibly can. I've been to uh, countless towns in my time there. Um, you know, it's it's something that is really important to the towns. And they start off, like I mentioned earlier, they start off very somber and very... Uh, a, a little bit mournful because, you know, they do recognize the lives that were lost and, and the importance of that sacrifice. And it usually starts at a, at a cemetery, a military cemetery, more often than not. Uh, speeches are read. Wreaths are laid. It's, it's very beautiful. And then as the day goes on, it becomes a little bit more um, excited and a little bit more thankful and a little bit more upbeat when they can then say that, yes, like these people died and sacrificed their lives for us so that we have what we have and then it's about being thankful and and enjoying what you have absolutely incredible when did you move back to canada i moved back in uh, 2012 okay so at what age would you have been then uh just around 17 years old and were you back on to uh, a base 
No, no, it's, it was my, uh, because my dad was uh, retired at that point, it was my first time kind of back in a uh, civilian world, going to a civilian school. <laughs> what was that transition like at that age? Oh, uh, it was it was very strange. It was, especially because I, I came back to Canada for my uh, 12th grade of high school. I did grade 12 in a victory lap at high school, and it's, you know, it was it was first off my school was way bigger than my military school. I went to Medway High School in, in Arva. Medway High School was around eleven hundred kids. My school was upwards of two hundred <laughs> when I lived overseas. So it was huge. It was you know, I was used to the to the barbed wire and the spiked fences and the security cameras. At my military school, we had active armed guards patrolling the school the entire time we were there. Wild. And then all of that is is gone. So at any point did you allow yourself to say, okay, yeah, no, this this is the way it is? Or or do you just kind of look and, and say, yeah, at some point somebody, an armed guard is going to be here at the school because it's, <laughs> it's just the way it is? It's, I, could never, I could never leave the school grounds. You know, I, I've had friends who, you know, maybe want to play a little bit of hooky, uh, <laughs> as you do in high school. And I... I couldn't really bring myself to do it because it felt uncomfortable. You know, it, it's something that we just literally were not able to do overseas. There were two layers of fences. So, yeah, it, it, it was weird. But I still kind of fent, uh, felt a little fenced in. It, it was strange. <laughs> Matt, this, you know, I don't mean to put you on the spot with this question because it mm. might be a, a difficult one to answer, but what do you feel that your upbringing did for you? When you look at yourself now as as who you have become, what do you think it attributed to? I think it put in me an enormous sense of pride uh, with where I am, who I like, where I'm from, uh, who I've become, the, you know, and pride in my family. Uh, I'll tell you, Mike, I went to my first concentration camp when I was around eight years old. They They make you do that in Europe at an incredibly young age. It's not something they skirt around. So I experienced that when I was young. When I lived in uh, when I lived in Belgium, every Remembrance Day, my family and I, we would walk to the memorial site where the last soldier of the war passed away. He was a Canadian soldier. Uh, final casualty of the war. We would go there every single year to spend you know, say something to him, to lay a wreath in a poppy at his, at his memorial site. I've been to Vimy countless times, and every single time it doesn't get easier. I've been to all these places, and I think that it made me stronger. It made me more, more prideful in our country, and I think it, it, you know, it made me grow up really quickly in a good way. What a great way to put it grow up quickly in in a good way as an eight-year-old visiting a concentration camp like you say they they don't skirt around this is our history you're going to learn it you might be young but you need to appreciate what went on here can you take us to you know to that kind of a, a sentiment because we do a lot of protecting now of young children as an eight-year-old, was that something that, that you were able to maybe not comprehend but at least appreciate so that you could one day comprehend what happened? Yeah, they they really drive it home hard in Germany. It's, it's you know, of, of course, the events of World War II are a source of immense shame for Germany. They're not proud of it. 
but they use it as a very formidable teaching experience. I, I went to Dachau concentration camp. It's in southern Germany. And even as a kid, you know, they, they, at first they take you around and you kind of see these empty halls and barracks. And it kind of looks like an, an old war base. And then they start explaining what happened to you. And they, they don't get rid of any details. It's everything that happened. They make sure you know exactly what happened. And it's heartbreaking. It's it's terrifying. It's genuinely scary as a kid because they take you to the chambers. They take you to, you know, they don't leave anything out. And when you realize what happened at that young age, you realize how important it becomes to know what happened so that you can appreciate everything that you have, everything that you've come from, and even for future reference to make sure that nothing like this ever happens again. It's it's traumatizing, but it's good that you know, if that makes sense. It does, and it is so important. Matt, thank you for giving this such a, a real sense for us. This uh, This has been really, really, really good. Thank you for doing this. It's absolutely my pleasure. It's, you know, today's an important day and, and I'm glad that, especially since coming back to London, I'm glad that it's important here as it was over there. Matt McNaughton, 980CFPL. One of the things that anyone who saw a Remembrance Day service in any city has commented on is just how quiet everything felt. Mayor Ed Holder had tweeted out this year's Remembrance Day service at the Victoria Park Cenotaph, much different from 2019 and previous years for that matter. Uh, he said it's London's appreciation, admiration, and affection for our veterans and jurors today and on all days we remember. And then he had a picture showing last year when we had snow on the ground in 2019, but just the seas of people, the masses of people along the sidewalk. And then today, it is 25 people by invitation only, and that is who we see at the Cenotaph. And so very different. And in Ottawa, they're saying the exact same thing, near-empty streets, a very solemn feel to it. Everyone basically marking... Remembrance Day from their own homes or from their own workplaces, if that's where they happen to be. So it is something that the ceremonies went on, but the empty streets, the pictures are are just staggering. If you look at the memorial in Ottawa, and if you've ever been there, um, if you have ever had a chance to walk around that particular memorial. It's kind of across from the Weston and the Rideau Center. It's it's just off Wellington. It's just east of the Parliament buildings. No matter what time of year it is, that's a place that certainly has a great deal of meaning. And you look at the the service and the ceremony that normally takes place there. Normally, you have a, a whole sea of poppies that are laying down right now where people will remove their poppies after remembrance day and they will place them at that war memorial in ottawa and the ground almost around it kind of gets all red with all the poppies that are there and this year no you you don't see as much of that at all in fact as i zoom in on a picture yeah it, it doesn't have that effect at all at the moment so 
It's been a different day, but at the same time, still so important to take a look back at some of the things that have taken place. And to do that, we rely now on on video and also on authors. And we are lucky enough that we are going to be joined in just a couple of minutes by Ted Barris. And Ted is a broadcaster. Ted is a journalist. He's a professor. And his family is one that has great military connections, much like Matt McNaughton, who we talked with an hour ago. And Ted has written so many different books about different things in Canada's history, whether it was the Allied Air War or whether it was Korea or D-Day, Juno, uh, Victory at Vimy is another book that Ted had written in 2007 saying Victory at Vimy when Canada comes of age. Um, another Damn Busters was all about Canadian airmen and the secret raid that took place against Nazi Germany. And that was published in 2018. And Ted does a fantastic job relaying stories, giving this such a human feel to it and we are lucky enough to have him with us right now ted it's always a pleasure to speak with you how are you doing i'm fine mike i've been listening to your um commentaries about the way everything was so different uh, this year and, and i experienced that myself um i just literally got back into my office after participating in a Remembrance Day event at the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum. And I've done presentations there now almost seven or eight years in a row, and this was the strangest because normally the hangar, and for those of your listeners who've gone to the Warplane Heritage Museum, you know how huge that hangar is uh, with all the aircraft in it. Um, they normally have 3,000 people there, and all there was there this today was the Padre and the Color Guard and the television crew, and that was it. So it's very, very weird. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. And I mean, you have prepared videos heading up to today and mm-hmm. been a part of those things. That's not normal behavior for you, is it? Well, it is because I'm a, I'm a broadcaster initially. I mean, that's where I started was in radio and television. Um, and so I'm, I'm familiar with and comfortable with that format. But having, I do, as you know, I do you know, 200, 250 talks a year speaking to legions and and school groups and historical societies and uh you know all sorts of different military banquets and so on and and my and the joy of of telling these stories is to be able to see faces and get the reactions immediately of the way you're delivering the story um and and most of the stories are so people oriented that people can connect immediately and without that I mean, in, in a way i was kind of working my presentation to the camera operator today she was standing there next to the camera and she became my audience <laughs> very strange but um yeah it, it's um it it's and and of course you got to push harder you know um it's like you know what what's like working in radio. You imagine your audience, and then maybe sometimes if you do a remote, you're there in front of an audience, and you get that wonderful feedback that way. But the rest of the time, you have to imagine them. 
Absolutely. You you love the interaction that you get, whether it's by phone calls or emails or, or social media. And, and that's that's the kind of thing that gives you that sense of people. And I guess that's what I was referring to. Normally, you are in front of people doing this, and now yeah. it is more video and, and remote and that sort of thing. But the message remains the same, right? It does. In fact, um, I was sitting with the hosts this morning, and um, we sat through three wonderful interviews that Bob Cowan did with veterans for the broadcast. And uh, one was um, a Korea War veteran, another was an Air Force veteran, another one was um, a Ground Forces veteran, all from either the Korean War or the Second World War. And we came out of it, and I said, now, remember, everybody, you're looking at faces that are 89, 95, 98 years old. They are not the you know, strong, young faces and bodies that went to war. Imagine your teenage kid. Imagine your teenage or 20-year-old uh, grandson or granddaughter. And the face that should be superimposed on the stories you just heard are those of young people. And when you do that, then people start to imagine with you, and they get the picture of the generation that has served us uh, in the 1940s and the generation that served us in Korea in the 1950s and the generation that has served us through the 2000s in Afghanistan. Ted Barris joining us. Military historian, author, journalist, and someone who is, is able to tell stories in such a great way. And Ted, this is something that we've been discussing today, how to make sure that we have these stories that we can pass on. And you always put such a human side to them. How do you, how do you kind of develop the art of storytelling? If we're going to sit down with a young person and say, okay, here are some things that we can know about our past and those who have served this country, just being able to, to kind of put that human touch on it. A lot of it comes from uh, the rapport you have with the interview you get from the veteran. Now, and they're becoming more and more scarce, of course. But um, for me, um, I don't necessarily want to know what the caliber of weapon was you had on your shoulder or, you know, whether it was a Mark I or a Mark II Lancaster or whether, you know, it was an 80-millimeter uh, artillery. What I'm interested in is what was it like at breakfast that morning when you faced the day? How did you deal with the tension and the, and the fear? Um, what made you do what you did when you leapt from whatever location you were in to save your, your buddy? Um, how did you deal with a wound? Um, what were the what were the medics doing when they attended you? How did you? What was your sense of of the moment as you recovered? Um, uh, what was it like to lose a friend? The things that were that are very personal. And if and if um, yeah, you get the context where they were, what they were holding, and, and and whether it was sunny or raining that day. But to me, it's to get into the head and heart of the of the veteran. Uh, and and sometimes all I have as a historian to write up my books, as was the case, you've mentioned uh, my victory at Vimy book. I interviewed absolutely no Vimy survivors, because by the time I started the book, even in the early 2000s, they were all gone. But what I turned to was their, uh, their mode of communication of that day. Back in the Great War, and even in the Second World War, and the Korean War, veterans, people who were part of those engagements, tended to write things down. Uh, they did it illegally when they wrote diaries because they weren't supposed to in case they got captured. Uh, they did it in their little um, Red Cross uh, paybooks. 
They did it on the back of cigarette packages. Uh, they wrote it in, in diaries that they kept or in logs, uh, particularly uh, enjoy reading uh, flight logs because they're very regimented. You have to just put the details, you know, what the date was, what the aircraft number, registration number was, what the operation was, how long you were in the air. But if you can kind of connect the dots and say, how did you feel when you got over the target? What was that? What was that moment like? And 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 you know when you survive, what's that feeling? You know, so you you um you look for the windows into the people's memory, um, or you you look for the thing when when you're and you know this too probably yourself, Mike, when you're talking to somebody and you fire a question at them and you do this at home when you're talking with each other and that person smiles all of a sudden in reaction to your question, you immediately stop whatever you were going to ask them and you say, what did you just think of when you smiled? Right. Yeah. Right. And and then magically, that's the entrance to a story or something that flashed across. Or maybe it wasn't a smile. Maybe it was a grimace. Maybe it was a tear. Maybe it was something that was much more emotional. And you and you whatever you were planning to do, you stop and you take that um, cue and follow it. And I've done that thousands of times, and it's revealed such wonderful stories. Um, can I tell you one that relates to? Um, uh, this day and the and the observance we just did, um, or did you want to take a break? Oh no, let's. Cool. Uh, if you have a story ready to go, okay, this is great. the time and this is the place to tell it. Please. Okay. Well, uh, um, I, I many years ago, um, and and again, this is something that we who are adults take for granted. When we get every fall the hundreds of thousands of bulbs that come from the Netherlands. We understand what the bulb signifies, not just the fact that it's a flower, but it's a gift from the Dutch to Canada to Canadians so that when they plant it in the, we plant it in the fall, it will lay dormant for five or six months. And then suddenly in May, it bursts forth with a tulip or whatever. And um, I remember back in the early 2000s, I was doing a television program and, and a number of the schools were calling me saying, Ted, we're getting all these bulbs, but we don't think the kids understand what it means. I said, okay, fine. So I found a man who actually was with a London regiment, the 1st Hussars, And um, uh, I said, Bruce, Bruce Evans was his name. I said, Bruce, would you consider coming into a schoolroom with me, wearing your medals, wearing your blazer? I'm going to find, and I know that you were um, among the tankers of the first Hazars who liberated towns and villages in, in the Netherlands. He said, sure, I'd love to. I'm going to bring a woman I found who was, at the time, in a Dutch town as a civilian who was liberated by Canadians. Uh, she's living in Canada now. He said, great. So I brought the two of them together. It was Bruce Evans, who was the tanker, and a woman named Anne Kaiser, who had been uh, a teenager when her, son, when her town, Enschede, was liberated. And I asked the two of them to talk about their experiences sitting in front of a classroom of grade eights. And they were all quite glued to the stories. Bruce talked about um, a moment in Appledorn when in the middle of a tank battle he pulled between two buildings. And uh, it's all of a sudden very quiet. And as he's sitting in his tank waiting for the next move, he hears a bang, 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 bang on the side of his tank. And he looks out, and he sees a Dutch family. Somehow they're in that area, and he comes out of the tank, and they reach up to him with a bowl of fruit. That was probably the most precious thing in their home at the moment, but they were giving it to the Canadians in that tank, uh, to, in that, uh, uh, to, the tank to carry on. 
And that had the kids absolutely riveted. And then we turned to Anne, and I said, Anne, what was it like to be... One of the kids actually said, was anybody in uh, among your friends or your family hurt or lost during the war? And, and Anne talked about working with the underground after she saw some of her Jewish friends in Enskede taken away and how that motivated her to become part of the Dutch underground. And she also talked about how her father who had been taken away from the town into Germany to become forced labor, came back to the Netherlands at the end of the war, but died because of the abuse and mistreatment and malnutrition he was suffering from uh, within you know weeks or days from the end of the war. So with those two images and those two wonderful people reminiscing in front of these kids, then I said, now let's go out to the garden in front of the school and plant the bulbs that you've got and remember why you did this, what it signifies, and bingo, they got it. Ted, you're such a great storyteller. We are with Ted Barris, who is an author of so many great reads. If you want to appreciate what has happened in our past in connection with the military, Ted mentioned, you know, dam busters, uh, Canadian airmen at the, and the secret raid against Nazi Germany, and also mentioned the book that he wrote about Korea, Deadlock in Korea. Canadians at War, 1950 to 1953, something that maybe we don't know as much about as we really need to. We are lucky enough to have with us on London Live the president and CEO of Historica Canada, Anthony Wilson-Smith. Anthony, thank you so much for taking some time for us. Thank you, Mike, for having me. You, every year do a Remembrance Day poll or a poll that is done around Remembrance Day to look at how the stories are being told and what sorts of feelings Canadians have. This is something that is always very interesting, very informative. If we look at this year's poll results, what stands out to you? Well, there are two things, Mike, uh, one of which is understandable and one of which we don't think is, frankly, all that good news. Um, not surprisingly, you know, we ask every year and have been for about 10 on people's intent to attend uh, a live or even online uh, Remembrance Day ceremony and whether they'll wear, you know, and whether they plan to wear poppies in the run up to the day. Um, you know, not surprisingly, in the middle of COVID and a pandemic, planned attendance is way down, although, you know, I think we could wish and are not seeing that a lot of people, you know, could uh, seeking out online, some of the online options that are available. The other thing that troubles us, which we had not seen much of before, as much of before, is that you know four in ten of our respondents, four in ten Canadians now say that they feel that they probably know more about American history, specifically American you know uh, battle history, than they do about our own country. Yeah, you know what? That's something that certainly comes up quite a bit, and you know I don't I don't know if we need to talk to the school system about this, look at curriculums or whether it is the the big voice that can come from the United States of America that maybe turns our attention that way too often, but we don't. I mean, Canadian history in school tends to start with Louis Riel and the fur trade and a number of other things. Is it that we haven't updated it enough? Is that what we're due for? We need an update? Well, it's, it's part of it, Mike. I think you just hit on a whole bunch of key elements in a row. I, you know, I think they all, all those points make sense. Like one of the issues we have here is that what's taught in schools is a provincial matter. So that means that we have 
all of the different provinces and all of the different territories telling different versions of history. Some of them, by the way, not teaching Canadian history at all as a formal course, although most do. And, and certainly the teachers are dedicated and really do a bang-up job when they do engage. But the tools haven't been updated. And, yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. It's always easier to call up and, you know, to find somewhere on Netflix or anywhere else uh, Kids saving Private Ryan, and that feels like the way it is, and forgetting that just down the beach, a lot of Canadians were fighting and dying with great distinction on the same day. So we have to tackle all of that. And um, and the one other thing I'd say is we know from our own Heritage Minutes and how widely viewed they are, particularly ones on, on wartime heroism, that th- there's a lot of enthusiasm for us, but people have to know how, where they can find this stuff. One of the things that you do kind of give us a little check and balance on is anniversaries and you you alluded to one right there but if we look at something like the liberation of the netherlands which in the netherlands is absolutely massive if we had to say okay do we know when that is how about the end of the second world war it's easy to know when the end of the first world war was but the second world war do we know that how are we doing in those checks and balances anthony well, I mean, again, like you said, we don't do well, but in a way we do. In other words, people don't know the dates. And, and of course, this is a very significant one. It's uh, As you're alluding to, it's 75 years, you know, the anniversary since both the, the liberation of the Netherlands, largely done by Canadian forces, and the full end of World War II as well. So it's a, a big anniversary, and I'm sorry to say probably the last major one in which we will still have veterans of those campaigns, you know, alive and with us for our, us to pay our respect. Yeah, so, you know, we there's not a great knowledge there. On the other hand, you know, we released a minute in the middle of the pandemic last May, marking the anniversary of the liberation of the Netherlands, you know, on Canadian efforts in there. And it was one of our most popular immediately. Within the first month, it was seen by more than four and a half million people, just as our D-Day one last year on Canada, Canada's role was seen by about the same number of people. So it's kind of if you build it or if you can show people where to find it, they're going to come and they're going to watch it. But, they, you know, stuff gets lost so easily. President and CEO of Historica Canada, Anthony Wilson-Smith, joining us now. Anthony, as we continue to look at the poll for just one more minute, you also asked something that is very fascinating about Remembrance Day and whether Remembrance Day ceremonies will become smaller as time goes on, as we lose more and more of our veterans from the Second World War and other conflicts. How about that? How, how do most Canadians feel about Remembrance Day ceremonies and whether they will continue with, with great observance or, or whether they might become smaller? I think, well, so specifically, like 71% of our respondents said, yeah, they think they will become smaller as time progresses and, you know, we don't have those veterans of the Second War. And we see other indications, to be clear, you know, for anybody who's served in the military since or is still serving. There's enormous respect that shows up in a lot of ways. Um, you know, people are very aware of, of what's put on the line and, and very respectful of that. But there is, you know, the last global conflict obviously has a special feel to it. The stories that are attached to it, knowing that we don't have many more years to say our direct thanks to the people who put you know, so much of themselves on the line. It's, it's, you know, I'm not that surprised to see that result, even as I say again, that there's tremendous respect for those who serve since and continue. At the same time. There have been so many things done to tell the stories, to certainly preserve stories that have been told. And one of those things is the memory project. And this is something that fortunately has 
received a lot of notice and needs to receive even more notice. Can you tell us about the memory project and kind of where that stands right now in 2020? Yeah, that's one of our uh, certainly one of our most emotionally resonant and popular programs overall. So basically what we do is uh, we, we work with veterans and current serving members in the military as well in arranging visits for them in schools where they can go and usually high schools age 14 to 17 where the veterans are or serving people can go in and tell their stories. In an average year, we'll, we'll arrange about 2,000 of those visits. We also have uh, video archives, the largest video archive of its kind in the world, as a matter of fact, uh, with some, including veterans, no longer with us. And uh, and this year, we recognize, our team recognized early where this was going in terms of the pandemic, so they started assembling a roster of specifically 550 speakers who know how to work, you know, are comfortable video conferencing, including some World War II veterans, who will do this with schools. So a couple quick examples. We had a current serving member of the military who was with NATO in northern Italy. He recently did a Zoom session with a class in, uh, I think it was northern Ontario. We have a couple of, we have uh, uh, quite a few Indigenous veterans who will work with anybody, but also specifically tell their stories on reserves as well. And we've got about 900 visits that, that we're just, you know, of course, wrapping up today with kids. So, you know, we're, we're not what we are in previous years, but we're certainly still out there, and that's something we'll build on. But those stories, just being there, the the accessibility for anybody who has ever taken the time to go through, you've got a search feature which essentially allows you to say, for instance, London, Ontario, and all of the contacts that you come up with in London, Ontario, all of the connections to London, Ontario, there they are. And it comes up and the stories come up. And some of those stories, I mean, to be able to tell those stories has to be so incredibly difficult. So many veterans come back and they don't want to tell those stories, do they? Well, you know, what we found like, was interesting was that you're absolutely right that for years the veterans wouldn't tell their stories, even to people in their families. We've been running this program since 2001. And what, what's happened, though, as the veterans have aged is I think they collectively started to realize if we don't tell those stories, who will? If we don't tell them, those stories will be lost. And, you know, and what a tremendous loss that will be in terms of next generations not understanding the personal impact of war. So they started to talk about it in schools, and, and often their families had never heard these stories themselves and came back and said it's remarkable. And then they started to see, and, you know, I've been, on, of course, on a number of these visits. It's really, it's quite a thing. You'll see a veteran, you know, in early 90s, he or she going in, and you can see these kids Fourteen or fifteen, and at first they look and think, you know, the Gulf, the age Gulf is so wide. What can I learn? You know, like how's this going to do anything for me? And then the veterans tell their stories about, you know, what it's like landing on the beach and the bullets are whizzing around you, and you know, and right next to you, someone just got hit, or perhaps you just lost your childhood friend of, of all your life, and you know, and, and you're spending weeks at a time or even months in absolute fear, knowing that at any moment, you know, there could be another fight erupting around you and that could be your last. And those are all the questions about how you feel that, that people want to ask. And when you see that happen, you see the veterans tell the stories, the years fall away for them. And at the end of these, invariably, the, you know, the teenagers who were so blasé at the beginning are rushing up to hug, to shake hands, to express their respect, to have their picture taken. It's quite an emotional thing. Because we can't just expect young people to say, oh, yeah, I get it. I, I, uh, I read a passage in a textbook or I, you know, I, I heard my parents talking about Remembrance Day at the dinner table. You can't expect them to have that appreciation. But when you're able to hear from someone's own voice, hear their own words, describe it, how much of a difference does that make? 
Oh, it's, it's everything. because It's also saying put yourself in the shoes of that person. So, for example, we still have an active speaker, a fellow in Ottawa named Alex Polowin, who was 16. He lied his way into the Royal Navy, and he was on the HMCS Huron on the day of, uh, on, you know, on the D-Day landing and in the ensuing Battle of Normandy that took place after. So you're hearing a guy who was 16 then, and if you're 15 or 16, you're thinking, well, is that me or not? You know, would I take that step if it came to that? And how would he have felt then? Because, you know, because all of a sudden you're seeing him in the same way that you're seeing yourself. You know, you're seeing a parallel that didn't exist. And that's the key. It's not learning dates and it's not place names or anything else. It's like, what is it on the ground? What would I do if my country said I need you now the way these people did? That's a question that we should all sit back and certainly contemplate. Anthony, thank you for the work that you do. Please continue to tell these stories and continue to give us those checks and balances to make sure that we do pause and we do say, yes, I do know when this happened and I do appreciate what happened there and what it means for all of us now. Anthony, thank you so much. Keep safe. Thank you, Mike. You too. That's Anthony Wilson-Smith, President and CEO of Historica Canada. And you can bring up whatever line you want about history and repeating it and all of those sorts of things. Just having somebody tell stories. That's what our world has always been about. It has. It's always been about that. And it's whether you're around a a campfire thousands of years ago. I guess it wouldn't have been a campfire. It would have been a fire to kind of keep you warm and cook food thousands of years ago. Or whether you are able to jump online and click some buttons and have a video appear and have a veteran tell you what their life was like, what they did in, as Anthony illustrates, lying at the age of 16 to get into the military to go and serve your country. Remarkable stories, and they need to be told. So if you have one, and there have been so many great family connections that have been listed on social media today. Social media today, hey, congratulations. You're doing something constructive instead of something destructive, which so often is the case. You're doing something constructive. You look at all of those connections that people are posting. This was my father. This was my grandfather. This is what my uncle did. My grandmother did. This is what happened. That's the kind of stuff that needs to continue on. If you have a connection, make sure you post it proudly. Make sure you tell that story so that that story is told. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.